Chapter Twenty Six of the Stillwater Tragedy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Stillwater Tragedy by Thomas Bailey Aldrich. Chapter Twenty Six. There was a fire in Richard's temples as he reeled out of Lawyer Perkins' office. It was now twelve o'clock, and the streets were thronged with the motley population disgorged by the various mills and workshops. Richard felt that every eye was upon him. He was conscious of something wild in his aspect that must needs attract the attention of the passers-by. At each step he half expected the leveling of some accusing finger. The pitiless sunshine seemed to single him out and stream upon him like a calcium light. It was intolerable. He must get away from this jostling crowd, this babble of voices. What should he do? Where should he go? To return to the yard and face the workmen was not to be thought of. If he went to his lodgings, he would be called to dinner, and have to listen to the inane prattle of the schoolmaster. That would be even more intolerable than this garish daylight, and these careless squads of men and women who paused in the midst of their laugh to turn and stare. Was there no spot in Stillwater where a broken man could hide himself long enough to collect his senses? With his hands thrust convulsively into the pockets of his sack-coat, Richard turned down a narrow passageway, fringing the rear of some warehouses. As he hurried along aimlessly, his fingers encountered something in one of his pockets. It was the key of a new lock which had been put on the scullery door of the house in Welch's court. Richard's heart gave a quick throb. There, at least, was a temporary refuge. He would go there and wait until it was time for him to surrender himself to the officers. It appeared to Richard that he was nearly a year reaching the little backyard of the lonely house. He slipped into the scullery and locked the door, wondering if his movements had been observed since he quitted the main street. Here he drew a long breath and looked around him. Then he began wandering restlessly through the rooms, of which there were five or six on the ground floor. The furniture, the carpets, and all the sordid fixtures of the house were just as Richard had known them in his childhood. Everything was unchanged, even to the faded peacock feather stuck over the parlor looking-glass. As he regarded the familiar objects, and breathed the snuffy atmosphere peculiar to the place, the past rose so vividly before him that he would scarcely have been startled if a lean, grey old man had suddenly appeared in one of the doorways. On a peg in the front hall hung his cousin's napless beaver hat, satirically ready to be put on. In the kitchen closet a pair of ancient shoes, worn down at the heel and with taps on the toe, had all the air of intending to step forth. The shoes had been carefully blacked, but a thin skin of mould had gathered over them. They looked like Lemuel Shackford. They had taken a position habitual with him. Richard was struck by the subtle irony which lay in these inanimate things, that a man's hat should outlast the man and have a jaunty expression of triumph, that a dead man's shoes should mimic him. The tall eight-day clock on the landing had run down. It had stopped at twelve, and it now stood with solemnly uplifted finger, as if imposing silence on those small, unconsidered noises which commonly creep out, like mice, only at midnight. The house was full of such stealthy sounds. The stairs creaked at intervals, mysteriously, as if under the weight of some heavy person ascending. Now and then the woodwork stretched itself with a snap, as though it had grown stiff in the joints with remaining so long in one position. At times there were muffled reverberations of footfalls on the flooring overhead. Richard had a curious consciousness of not being alone, but of moving in the midst of an invisible throng of persons who elbowed him softly and breathed in his face, and vaguely impressed themselves upon him 
as being former occupants of the premises. This populous solitude, this silence with its busy interruptions, grew insupportable as he passed from room to room. One chamber he did not enter, the chamber in which his cousin's body was found that Wednesday morning. In Richard's imagination it was still lying there, white and piteous, by the hearth. He paused at the threshold and glanced in, then turned abruptly and mounted the staircase. On gaining his old apartment in the gable, Richard seated himself on the edge of the cot-bed. His shoulders sagged down, and a stupefied expression settled upon his face, but his brain was in a tumult. His own identity was become a matter of doubt to him. Was he the same Richard Shackford who had found life so sweet when he awoke that morning? It must have been some other person who had sat by a window in the sunrise thinking of Margaret Slocum's love, some Richard Shackford with unstained hands. This one was accused of murdering his kinsman, the weapon with which he had done it, the very match he had used to light him in the deed, were known. The victim himself had written out the accusation in black and white. Richard's brain reeled as he tried to fix his thought on Lemuel Shackford's letter. That letter! Where had it been all this while, and how did it come into Taggett's possession? Only one thing was clear to Richard in his inextricable confusion. He was not going to be able to prove his innocence. He was a doomed man, and within the hour his shame would be published to the world. Roland Slocum and Lawyer Perkins had already condemned him. And Margaret would condemn him when she knew all for it was evident that up to last evening she had not been told. How did it happen that these overwhelming proofs had rolled themselves up against him? What malign influences were these at work, hurrying him on to destruction and not leaving a single loophole of escape? Who would believe the story of his innocent ramble on the turnpike that Tuesday night? Who could doubt that he had gone directly from Slocum's to Welch's court, and then crept home red-handed through the deserted streets? Richard heard the steam whistles recalling the operatives to work, and dimly understood it was one o'clock, but after that he paid no attention to the lapse of time. It was an hour later, perhaps two hours, Richard could not tell, when he roused himself from his stupor, and descending the stairs, passed through the kitchen into the scullery. There he halted and leaned against the sink, irresolute, as though his purpose, if he had had a purpose, were escaping him. He stood, with his eyes resting listlessly, on a barrel in the further corner of the apartment. It was a heavy hooped wine-cask, in which Lemuel Shackford had been wont to keep his winter supply of salted meat. Suddenly Richard started forward with an inarticulate cry, and at the same instant there came a loud knocking at the door behind him. The sound reverberated through the empty house, filling the place with awful echoes, like those knocks at the gate of Macbeth's castle the night of Duncan's murder. Richard stood petrified for a second. Then he hastily turned the key in the lock, and Mr. Taggett stepped into the scullery. The two men exchanged swift glances. The bewildered air of a moment before had passed from Richard. The dullness had faded out of his eyes, leaving them the clear, alert expression they ordinarily wore. He was self-possessed, but the effort his self-possession cost him was obvious. There was a something in his face, a dilation of the nostril, a curve of the under lip, which put Mr. Taggett very much on his guard. Mr. Taggett was the first to speak. "'I've a disagreeable mission here,' he said slowly, with his hand remaining on the latch of the door, which he had closed on entering. "'I have a warrant for your arrest, Mr. Shackford.' 
"'Stop a moment,' said Richard, with a glow in his eyes. "'I have something to say.' "'I advise you not to make any statement.' "'I understand my position perfectly, Mr. Taggett, and I shall disregard the advice. After you have answered me one or two questions, I shall be quite at your service.' "'If you insist, then?' "'You were present at the examination of Thomas Bluffton and William Durgin, were you not?' "'I was.' "'You recollect William Durgin's testimony?' "'Most distinctly.' He stated that the stains on his clothes were from a certain barrel, the head of which had been freshly painted red. "'I remember.' "'Mr. Taggett, the head of that barrel was painted blue.' End of chapter 26